Uh, we're going to jump into God's Word today. And so we've got Pastor Daniel speaking to us today. Uh, let's turn to James chapter 4. We're reading verse 1 to 12 of James chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or you have an app on your phone, let's turn to James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Let me read that for us, and then Pastor Daniel will speak uh, God's word for us today. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Let me read. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God. Everyone. It's a privilege to uh, stand before you here again to uh, look at God's Word and figure out what He has to say uh, to us this morning. Uh, but before I jump in, I need some help, so why don't you join me as I pray. Father, we give you thanks and we appreciate the fact that you have spoken and we have it in this book called the Scriptures. But we also know and we appreciate and love you that these words speak true and speak light into the here and now, into our lives today. So, Father, we invite you to do that. We invite you to shine some light onto the Scriptures so that we might understand. But as we understand, Father, I pray that this knowledge might be turned into wisdom and this wisdom might be turned into life-changing transformation for all of us here. So, Father, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to feel, minds to understand, and a spirit to trust in the Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, if you've joined us uh, for the first time today, we've been going through uh, a sermon series on the uh, letter that uh, James, who is actually the brother of Jesus, wrote to a group of uh, Jewish Christians that were spread across uh, what was then, uh, what is now, excuse me, uh, Turkey. And We've been going through it for about eight weeks now, 
So we've gone through a lot of stuff up till now. So let me start off our time together today with a question. Looking back on the eight things that we have learnt in the eight talks that we have heard, how are you doing applying them all? I think one of the reasons that I often hear from Christians about the Bible, and to be fair, I agree with this to a certain point, sometimes the Bible, when you read it, it doesn't give us a clear uh, way to apply what we read. I mean, have you ever come across the genealogy of Abraham and you're kind of like, what do I do with this, right? Kind of probably skip over it. Uh, I might have done that once or twice in the past. But luckily, uh, the book of James is not a genealogy. Uh, It is a scarily practical book. I would actually put it uh, up there in the top three most practical books of Scripture. It's not only practical, though, uh, but I'm sure you would have realized as you read it with us, it's scarily relevant. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you guys to do a little bit of a a performance review uh, of sorts. Uh, these are the brief descriptions of the application points that we've drawn out in the last eight weeks. Let me go through them, follow along. Uh, be joyful through trials of various kinds. Be wise. Don't blame God. Do what God's Word says. Don't show favoritism. Make sure your faith isn't dead. Tame your tongue. Be wise, part two, (laughs) just in case you missed it. Looking at that list, imagine that God was giving a a performance review of sorts to you in this moment, this morning, knowing what you know, what he wants from you, how well would he rate your progress? In our passage, James gives a moment uh, for his readers to breathe a little, because there's heaps and heaps of applications that he's got, just gone through, and he's uh, inviting us to reflect on what he has said from chapters 1 through 3. And like most, if not all of us, James seems to predict the answer we're all thinking of to this question. How well are you going applying the book of James? Probably not as well as we might want to be. The first section, which is from verses 1 to 5, James gives us an explanation of sorts of why we find it so difficult to apply these clear-cut crystal applications. And in the second section, thankfully, he gives us the solution. And then in the final section in verses 11 to 12, he ends with giving us, again, he can't help himself here, he gives us a a real practical uh, indicator that we are on the right track. These will form the three points of our talk together, the problem, the solution, and the proof, if you will. If you're a note taker, uh, whack that into your notebooks. Uh, Even though uh, James is an immensely practical book, Even though it is a book with clear and crystal do's and don'ts, I want to show you that at the heart of the book, at the heart of this letter, is still the heart of our faith. Of course, uh, what I mean is the the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Uh, 
Pastor Paul, I think a couple of weeks back, uh, previously talked about uh, the great reformer Martin Luther and how uh, he wasn't much of a fan. Uh, he wasn't much of a fan of this particular book. He called it the epistle of straw. In other words, an epistle that's worthless in a sense. Uh, because to him, it seemed like the book of James never really talked about the central theme that we can find throughout the rest of Scripture, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. But even in such a practical book like this, God still speaks his good news to us. It's here we find it most clearly. So I hope we can see that as we jump into it. The book of James, with all of its practical tips and application points, still, at the end of it all, points to the gospel. So let's see how that pans out. So we're looking at the problem, verses 1 to 5. Uh, Notice as you scan that passage, notice how James asks three questions here in these five verses. And with these three questions, uh, he gives three follow-up comments that shine some light on how we find it so difficult to apply what we know to be true, what we know to be helpful, what we know to be good. So let's look at them and see what we can find out about this problem. The first question is, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's the question. And then his comment is, well, your passions are at war within you. So why do you fight amongst yourselves? Well, because you fight with yourself. Your passions are fighting from within. In other words, why do we, why, why do we find it difficult to tame our tongues? Why do we gossip? Why, why do we show favoritism? Why do we fight with one another? Well, because our deepest desires fight with one another. Our deepest desires are disordered, if you will. Let me try to flesh this out a bit. As Christians, on the one hand, there is a part of us, a genuine part of us, that wants to serve God. Agreed? If we look inward and we reflect, there is a genuine part of us that wants to say yes to God, wants to walk in His way, to obey His word, to love Him, to love others, to do good, to be selfless. The list goes on. There is a part of us that says amen to everything that God says. Praise God for that. But if we're honest, there is another part of our inner being, a big part, if we're honest, that wants to do nothing with God, that reads His Word and disagrees with what He says, that doubts God, that questions the morals of Scripture, that part of us that whispers to us daily, it's okay to be a little bit selfish. It's okay to look after yourself. You're right. God's wrong. Follow your heart. James comments about this, in fact, this idea of following our hearts. He says, We ask and don't receive because we ask with wrong motives to spend it on our passions. See, the part of the problem is a problem of our passion. We often don't know what we want. We, we struggle with these two uh, natures, if you will, within us. 
Or worse yet, we succumb and we uh, fall deeper into our, our bad passions, if you will. We desire wrongly to spend it on ourselves and not for God. Let's look deeper. The second question. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And his comment is, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here James gives another part of the problem. We want to have the best of both worlds, don't we? James says that to follow Jesus means to go in the other direction of the world that we live in. Part of why we find it so hard to obey God. A large part of the reason why we find it hard to be holy, to seek godly wisdom, to tame our tongues, to show no favoritism, etc., 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 is because we want to be liked by the non-Christian world and the Christian God. But they are two roads, James is saying here, that run oppositely to the other. Worldly wisdom says one thing. Godly wisdom says another. Worldly speech is one way. Godly speech is another. Worldly living is one way. And godly living is another. You see... It makes sense, logically speaking. We can't be saying that we're going both left and right, can we? That just doesn't make any sense. And that is what James is saying here. And finally, uh, the third question. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says? Pause there. Uh, Say what exactly? And here's the comment. Uh, Now, this is one of the few instances uh, that the uh, Greek New Testament, which is where we get our translated English Bible from, could actually mean two different things. Um, So stick with me here. Uh, It could mean uh, what the English Standard Version has here, right, Uh, which is what we have read. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. In other words, uh, put it bluntly, God is jealous for each of you. That's just an aggressive way of saying God desires, earnestly, yearns for you. He treasures you. He wants you, right? Which is absolutely true. The scriptures are full of promises and comments about how God loves us with a relentless love. And that is good news. But right, it could be also translated... Um, as uh, how the Christian Standard Bible and the uh, NIV uh, old school version, the 1984 version, translates it. It says, The spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. See see how it, it, it means two different things? See, the human spirit, the core of what makes you human, is full of envy full of jealousy. We are never satisfied with what we have, and we always want more of what we don't have. And that's also true too, right? 
Both ideas are found throughout Scripture. But I think given the topic that James is speaking about, he's talking about the problem of why we can't seem to obey God, I think that the second translation is what he intended to say. Of course, like I said, both are true, but in this particular passage, what James was trying to say to his audience is the latter. In other words, all humans, you and me, us and them, struggle with envy. We we struggle with jealousy. Think about it, friends. How often have you found yourself wanting something that you never knew you wanted, and then someone else had it? And you're like, yeah, I want some of that. You know, I never thought um, I wanted to be a homeowner. I never thought that I wanted a mortgage. I never thought that I wanted to buy a house. Until my friends started buying their second and third investment properties. I, I wanted some of that. I didn't know I wanted it until they had it. But what about yourself? Like, what, what, like that piece of clothing that you never knew you wanted, that you never even knew existed. Your friend bought it, and now you want it. See, James is claiming here, and I think he is right, that human desire changes so much depending on what we envy in others. I mean, if I boil it down to the application points that we've gone through in the last eight weeks, think about this. Why do we gossip about others? Well, there's many reasons, but sometimes it's because we envy the people that we gossip about, isn't it? Why do we include others and exclude others and practice partiality? Well, sometimes it's because we envy the person that we want to get close with. And we don't envy the person that we don't want to get close with. See, taking all these questions and comments together... All in all, James gives us a pretty clear picture of the problem. And here it is. The problem is not on the outside. It's here. It's on the inside. It's on the inside. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was on my way to a wedding. And uh, I was stuck in traffic on Concord Road. Terrible road, right? Uh, When you're in traffic. And uh, I reversed into... Uh, a car, like I backed into the car because I didn't see my blind spot. I had the music turned on. I had a couple of friends in the car, so I didn't really check. And they went, boom. Um, and I was like, oh, no. You know that feeling? Um, so then I, I, I parked to the side, checked my uh, bumper. And on my right bumper, I uh, kind of wish I'd put a photo, actually. It was like a big dent on it. Right? And then I also damaged uh, the other person's uh, door. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't too bad, right? Uh, We sorted it out. I went to the wedding, and miraculously, this is funny, miraculously after I uh, attended the wedding and came back to the car, the bumper actually fixed itself. I don't know how. Maybe it was the weather. I don't know. Um, So, yeah, my car's fine. I'll show you if you want to see after church. Um, But I still got to to the wedding, right? I still uh, drove my car around the whole day. But what if I ran out of petrol? on the way. What if there was no petrol station? It doesn't matter how pristine my car looked. It doesn't matter if I just got a car wash the day before. No petrol equals no driving. And that's the same for us as human beings and as Christians, and that is James's point. So often we focus too much on our external. 
and we forget that the real problem is the internal. Our problem is not on the outside. It's the problem of the heart, if you will. So I'd imagine that most of us are thinking, sitting there, well, that's great, Daniel. You've just told me that my problem is something inside of me. Well, how am I supposed to change that? How do I fix my emotions, my desires, my passions? How do I fix that? Well, I said in the beginning uh, that the gospel message still lies at the center of the book of James. And here it is. If you want a verse that highlights the main message of this book, it's this verse. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me speak to the, the Christians in this room for a minute. Brother or sister, how did you come to faith in Jesus? Did you come to believe in Jesus because you were good enough? Did you come to believe in Jesus because you were strong enough or better or did you come to believe in Jesus because in a moment, in that space, you realized that you were not good enough? That you weren't nearly as good as you once thought you were? You see, if we start our faith journey on this basis, that I am weak and God saves me still, Praise God that that is the case. Why then, I wonder, are we trying to go back to living as if we are strong without God sustaining us? As the Apostle Paul says it, are you so foolish after beginning in the Spirit, you are now finishing by the flesh? When we try to become better Christians without Christ, when we think that we can do it with our effort and our willpower alone, get this, aren't we being a little bit proud? I mean, think about it. These commands that God wants of us, they're good things. But let's be honest, we're quite bad at them. But why do we insist then, even as we fail time and time and time and time again, that we can still do it alone? Or worse yet, pretending that we are good at it when we're not. That is the pride that James highlights here. That is the pride James gives us who have this kind of pride a significant warning. God opposes you. And I hope that none of us, by the end of this, would be in that category. I hope that through the first point and the second and the third, uh, we, we will be somewhat humbled because we can't fix our, beha our behavior, can we? We can't fix our hearts. 
And it's in that space of recognizing that I have failed and I am in deep waters that God gives grace. James gives three incredible assurances for those who are humbled. Assurances that God can and God will change our hearts. Let's look at verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come to God for strength, because when you come to God, what happens? Our enemy flees. Our journey towards Christ-likeness, our sanctification, is in many ways no different from our salvation, our justification. You see, grace, God's wonderful grace saves us, but God's grace also sustains us. Grace gives us the power to believe in Jesus, and it is the same grace of God that gives us the power to overcome our sin. Do we understand that? Do we get that? Because when we do, why shouldn't we submit to God? Why shouldn't we come to God and say, you are Lord and I am not? Because when we do, the devil flees. How great is that? That is assurance number one. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a wonderful verse but an obvious one, maybe. This seems obvious. Because by definition, as Christians, we're supposed to draw near to God. Draw near to God daily. Yeah, I know that. But, but here's the thing. Think about the prideful person for a sec. The prideful person who thinks that they have it all together, who has never admitted their failures, really has no need to draw near to God. Or so he thinks. And sure, a prideful Christian, if there ever was one, might have the signs of an externally religious person. This prideful person might come to church on a regular basis, maybe even on time, for goodness sake. Whoa, you know, that's a, that's a true Christian there, apparently. Right? But surely we know that just because you come to church, pray a little, and read the Bible from here, to, uh, from here and there, that does not mean you are automatically drawing near to God. Think about it this way. I could drop into a store and browse around a little, but that doesn't mean I'm buying anything there. It is only when we are humbled, when we realize and own up to our failures and our faults, when we are, as James describes it very, uh, very harshly, I think, when we are miserable, mourning and weeping. Oof. It's only when we are there that we draw near to God. But what a promise this is. When we realize our failures and weaknesses, and in our failures and weaknesses, we stumble forward and approach God, battered and bruised, beaten and broken, God reaches down to us. If that wasn't enough, here's the final assurance. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
Friends, isn't this the gospel in a nutshell? Of course, there's many other elements to it. But if you wanted to sum up at the Christian good news, here it is. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Admit that we are weak and he will strengthen us. Confess our sin to God and he will forgive us. Isn't that at the core of our faith? Isn't our faith about the tax collector who cries out for mercy to God, who is deeply conscious of his need for forgiveness? And Jesus says it, he left being justified. You remember that story? Isn't that the heart of our message? Spiritual growth, personal holiness, does not come through independent effort, but through complete dependence on Jesus. So taking these three assurances together, this is the solution to our problem. God. But God. But He gives more grace. Friends, God tells us many things. He commands many things and He wants much out of us. But what God wants of us, He gives to us also. Gosh, if we believed in that, how different our lives and our faith would look. Maybe the reason why so many of us haven't seen any noticeable change in our lives and in our faith for so long is because somewhere along that road of faith, we have forgotten to submit to God. We have forgotten what it even looks like to draw near to God, to humble ourselves before God. Maybe we've gotten so used to being saved that we stopped relying on the grace that saved us in the first place. Maybe we've tricked ourselves somewhere along the way that we don't really need God, that my achievements, my talents, my wealth, my ability is enough. Well, then maybe this is the moment that God is calling you back. Maybe this is the moment where he asks you to return to grace, to return to him. You don't have to live in your failures and disappointments. You don't have to pretend to have it all figured out and stubbornly press forward with your pride. There is another option, and here it is. Own your failures and disappointments Yes, I have failed. I don't know it all. I don't have it all figured out. Maybe then the enemy will flee and God will draw near and he will lift you back up. What an incredible promise. So that's the solution. Do you find it hard to apply what James says? Good, you're not alone. James is writing to people just like that. He reminds us that there is grace. 
When we admit our failings, we are humbled. And when we are humbled, God does what he does best. He gets us back up. But here's a follow-up question. How do I know that I am being humble? How do I know that I am humbling myself before God? You see, there are some things in the Christian life that are quite obvious uh, that you are doing well in obeying God, right? But being humble is not one of them. Being humble is something that is very difficult to identify. Uh, The author C.S. Lewis once said that, and I think this is quite striking, if you think that you are humble, it means you are very prideful indeed. Humility is a great thing to want, but a tough thing to know you already have. Luckily, James doesn't leave us in the dark. Thank goodness. He gives us verses 11 and 12 to show us what it looks like. You know, James sort of can't help himself, right? He's very, very practical, and he kind of chucks this in uh, so that we can, you know, practically understand it. He answers our question. What does it look like to be humble? Well, let's have a look. Verse 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? James brings the application to a scenario that we are all too familiar with, if we're honest. Gossiping and judging others. So one could ask, gossiping and judging, how is that related to humility? Well, a humble person, humbled by God, will never take his place as the judge of someone else's life. That's what James says here, right? James is saying, uh, if you are in the habit of criticizing the lives of other people and make judgment calls about them, quite possibly, you are playing God. He doesn't beat around the bushes, does he? This is a heavy word. It's a serious warning that we all need to appreciate. There is an obvious difference, I do have to say this, between being genuinely concerned about a fellow Christian, right? The Bible also talks about how we need to encourage one another and at times rebuke and and push people forward in the right direction. You can't really do that unless you make somewhat of a judgment call about their lives and their habits and so on. But that's not what James is saying here, right? Because that, what is that driven by? It's driven by love. It's driven by care. It's driven by concern for them. But on the other hand, talking smack about other Christians just for the sake of talking smack is a whole different thing altogether, isn't it? A commentator says that to speak evil means to take a position over someone, to dominate over them. I'll put it bluntly, to think that you are better than someone. Sometimes we gossip and sometimes we judge because we think that we're better than them, don't we? When we engage in judging other people, when your conversations are full of criticizing others that fuel your sense of, I'm better than them, this could be a telltale indicator that you are in dangerous waters. You may be playing God. You are determining by your speech whether this person is saved or not. 
But as James says, you are acting like the judge of the law. But spoiler alert, there is only one judge and his name is God. He who is able to save and to destroy. It's not you. That's why he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? If you really are humble, if we really know that we have no right to think that we are better than someone, even those who may be in deeper sin than we are, even so, how can we stand in the position of judgment and so carelessly gossip about the failures of others when we have our own failures to confront? If we are really concerned about someone's faith, brothers and sisters, the first response should never be to criticize and talk smack about them, but it should be, first and foremost, to drive us to prayer. Lord, I am so much like this person. Help me, help them, help us, help me, Jesus. That should be our first response. So the question that James poses, who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, to a prideful person, the answer would be, who do you think you are? I'm better than them. I know better and am better. So I have the right to say what I say. That is what a prideful person would say and think. But to a humbled person, and that is my hope, that all of us would be in this category, our answer should be, you're right, I'm no better than them. In a way, I'm just like them. I need Jesus, they need Jesus, we need Jesus, help me, Jesus. We are either one or the other, though. We are on the road of pride or on the road of humility. Which road we are on gives us a sense a proof, if you will, that we are fighting to obey God in the right way or the wrong. To be sure, this is not the only proof of a humble heart, but it is a significant one that we need to appreciate. See, if I tend to criticize other people's faith, I, I may not be nearly as humble as I might think. But on the flip side, if I tend to confess the failings of my faith, more often than I think about the failings of other people's faith, then I may not be nearly as proud as I might think. Let me close by uh, bringing us back to the book of James' to-do list. Be joyful through trials of various kinds. Be wise. Don't blame God. Do what God's word says. Don't show favoritism. Faith without works is dead. Tame your tongue. Be wise, part two. See, none of these we would openly say, are bad. They're quite good. Even, I think, my non-Christian friends would look at that and be like, yeah, if God is real and God is, you know, who you say he is, and these, these are good stuff. But all of us would agree that it's pretty hard to do. And that's why James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12 is here. And this is why the sermon title is called The Gospel According to James. Because James reminds us of the good news. I can't do this, but God can, therefore, I can. 
Tim Keller once said that too often Christians think that grace, the good news, the gospel of Jesus is treated as the ABCs of Christianity. Know it, believe it, move on from it, if you will. But he stresses, he stresses that grace and the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is not the ABCs. You may have heard this term. It is the A to Z. It is the entire alphabet of our faith. Brothers and sisters, if I can leave you with one exhortation, it's this. Hold tightly to grace as you journey on in the Christian faith. Don't let grace go when you try to overcome your sin. Don't let grace go when you, especially when you fall and fail. Don't let it go. Because He gives more grace. Our journey to holiness and obedience isn't a straight path. It really isn't. If you've been a Christian for more than a second, you would agree with me. It is a windy road with ups and downs and twists and turns. And more often than not, we're going to find ourselves fall flat on our faces. And it is when we do, what will you do? Well, submit to God. Draw near to God. Humble yourself. A good way to do this is to do a performance review of sorts regularly in your life. In prayer, tell God how you did on that day or in that week. God, I I obeyed you in these ways, but I failed in these. You see, the act of laying down our performance in prayer has the effect of reminding your own spirit that you still need God. But that God in that space is also there for you. And he will fight for you. Uh, This is the gospel according to James, brothers and sisters. We have a problem. And we can't fix it ourselves. But we have a solution. God gives grace and lifts us back up. And this makes a difference in how we see others and how we see myself. Isn't this the gospel? Isn't this just another way of saying what we find throughout the rest of Scripture? That we have a problem. This problem's called sin. But God gives us grace by sending His Son so that we might be lifted up into life. And therefore, doesn't this make all the difference in the world? Let me pray. Loving Father, we are in need of your grace, not only in this moment, but every moment of our lives. Thank you that you are a God who doesn't just bring us out of this kingdom of darkness and leave us to do our own thing, but you are a God who walks alongside us, who gives us the strength, the power necessary to get through the trials of various kinds that lay before us. Father, I pray for my friends here. Particularly, I pray for those of us who are here 
who have not yet tasted and seen the goodness of God, who have not yet received this incredible grace, this offer of forgiveness, the newness of life, I pray that you might work in their hearts in this moment. And I also pray for my dear beloved brothers and sisters here who are walking faithfully uh, in your way, especially those of us who have fallen to the wayside a little and have begun to think that we can do what we are called to do. Father, forgive us. Lord, we know that it is not I, but it is Christ through and in me. Help us to return to this grace. Help us to draw strength from this grace and help us to overcome our sin purely by your grace. Why don't we spend just a minute reflecting, maybe do a a performance review of sorts um, about all the things that you've tried to apply uh, in the book of James. And if if, uh, you struggle to remember uh, some of those, it's okay. Just, Just think about just your life in general and how you have followed the Lord. And just spend this time humbling yourself. Just, just tell God, not only about where you have done well, but, but particularly where you have not done well. That is the blessing that God has given to us this morning that invites us into speaking about our failures and disappointments and see what God does with that. He gives more grace. So why don't we do that in prayer uh, before we uh, sing praises to Him. Let's pray.